Our scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Amen. Well, my name is Sam, and I have the privilege of preaching God's Word to you today in Colossians. We've been going through it, and we go through books of the Bible verse by verse. There's a study guide out there, um, so I hope you will grab one. Uh, we had an awesome discussion. Part of the um, another aspect of our church is to do uh, what we call road groups. It's our version of community groups, small groups, whatever. And in the group that, uh, that meets at my house, we had a great conversation on Friday evening, and a lot of laughs, but a, a lot of conversation about what maturity means. Last week I talked about maturity and sometimes we have some misconceptions and I even posted something on Road Life which is our kind of social network piece about trying to not misunderstand um, maturity because we have a lot of baggage we bring to it and we sometimes speak of maturity as if there are mature Christians that uh, have arrived, have been made perfect, have like figured it out and those immature ones someday will be like me Um, And so I want to make sure we speak against that and really hope today's sermon defines what we mean or what I mean by maturity, uh, because what we're really talking about is a path to walk of maturity, a path that biblically we'd call sanctification, looking more like Christ, and the end of that, that path, the end of the race, if you will, is death. Okay, so that is when you are made perfect, when you are dead. Until then, it's always imperfection. You are at best a mature person who does immature things occasionally. Um, but we hope that um, that becomes less and less. But as we talked about maturity, um, I think one thing that we could all agree upon that it was troubling or is troubling when you see adults, in whatever sense of the word you think an adult is, who, uh, who is immature, whether it be physically, emotionally, or especially spiritually. Um, last, uh, last week, Paul's explanation or, or kind of the heart of what he was saying was that his whole goal of everything he's doing, whether it be suffering or, or prospering, was to bring others to maturity. And that is the goal, to see others mature in Christ. And so I've just been thinking about maturity a bunch. And, and what happened this week, you may have heard a story came out about a guy that reminded me of, uh, or screamed of, immaturity or maturity and this, I, these ideas. Um, it was all over the radio. I've heard it before. I've, I've seen it on a, on a TV show once. And there's a story of a California man named uh, Stanley. 
good old Stanley. And Stanley is 30 years old, about to turn 31 in a couple months. You can look at his website. He has one for himself to explain everything about him. And he chooses to live life as an adult baby. I don't know if you guys heard this. You Google it, you'll find out. Stanley Thornton Jr. And Stanley lives in a, a life of an adult. What does that mean? Well, he has a, a life complete with adult diapers, chooses to wear them. He has um, adult bottles that he has crafted. He has an adult crib that he has built for himself to sleep in. Uh, he has plans on his website that you can download to build it, should you wish to have one yourself. He has an adult uh, high chair, that he, and he's not a small guy, so this is like a big chair, right? Um, he has uh, an adult caregiver for him to mother him um, who gets paid by the state to do so. And the reason it came up was because um, he's in California. I think an Oklahoma senator heard about it was like, what in tarnation? Because he is getting Social Security checks to fund his lifestyle. Okay? Now, uh, I won't go into every detail of it. You can look it up. But Stanley's a pretty easy target, right? Um, he's pretty easy to make fun of. I mean, I've got a list of jokes that I could just lay out right now. We could be here just laughing the whole time. And he's an easy target, and we've got to be careful in judging because I don't want to judge Really, although he's expressed a lot of reasons why he's doing this, I don't want to judge necessarily um, the, uh, the motivation of his heart, even though I think it's creepy. Um, we have to be careful. But one thing that is certain that everyone, regardless of how you feel about Stanley, is that my hope is we would agree that this is not how things ought to be. Now that's like, this, there's something off, whatever that off is or why, we can argue about but this is not how things ought to be. And Stanley got me thinking about spiritual immaturity. And I have become convinced, and I know because I think I was maybe like this myself for a long time, maybe most of my life as a Christian, that there's a lot of believers whose spiritual lives look like Stanley. And, of course, no one who is the spiritual Stanley would ever admit that. Um, but without doubt... If we were going to say anything, don't be like Stanley. Okay, that's like, there's lesson number one, go and be blessed. But the reality is that Stanley and spiritual immaturity, if we compare it, there's some choices involved here. There's some intentionality about how uh, Stanley, in this case, is choosing to walk. What path he is deliberately choosing to walk. And the truth is that a lot of us enjoy living like Stanley want to live like Stanley. And we have lots of uh, reasons and excuses um, for why we do that. But biblically, if we compare, make the comparison with spiritual maturity, we should be able to say and agree that that's not how things ought to be. Um, and again, I think that like Stanley, who has a, a litany of reasons psychologically and medically and all these things that he, you know, is the reason why he has to live like this, um, we often, for our spiritual immaturity, use excuses to explain why we're not walking the path that we ought to walk. And we, like Adam, like to blame things. We use our parents. Um, we use our upbringings. We use traumatic experiences in our lives. Uh, we often use uh, our marriages. It's just too difficult. I can't do this. She's a really strong woman. I can't lead her. Uh, we use... Our finances, i got to work all these hours so I have no time for X, Y, Z. Our jobs, 
uh, our time, our family commitments. That's a big one. We use uh, our learning styles. That's just not how I learn. I don't, that's not how I mature. I can't do that. I can't walk that path. We even use our theology at times to explain why um, we're not going to walk that path because I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to just kind of magically make it appear in my life. And so we have our excuses. Some, I think, that we would probably even think sound reasonable or feel sound reasonable to justify our delayed spiritual growth, why we're a bit slow, okay? The truth is, a lot of us just don't want to grow up. The truth is, a lot of us enjoy sitting in the crib. Feels good. It's too much work. And it is work. It's hard. We were talking about it in our, in our group, the idea of like uh, the things that um, we would define as Christian maturity, if we could get away from the stupidity of legalism, just for a second, but just the idea of community, the idea of forgiveness, all those types of things that we would go, man, this is a demonstration of some level of maturity in this individual. Um, those things are hard. Community is hard. It's uncomfortable. But that's the difference between a child and an adult. Like, they step back and go, I'm going to do this hard thing that I don't really feel like doing because I know it's actually to the glory of God and good for me. That, that's the key difference. Now, I think the truth of our immaturity often is that we don't want to grow up. We don't want to try. Hebrews 5 says it this way, and this is a very interesting verse that I, you probably or hopefully are familiar with, but it says this in verse 11 of chapter 5 in Hebrews, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of a God. You need milk and not solid food. Now he's speaking as if this is how things ought not be, right? And he says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's just stating a fact, not necessarily condemning, just stating the truth. But solid food is for the mature, catch this, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by magic, osmosis, no, by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Like, you have to practice. There actually is some participation involved in it. Acts 29, Pastor Matt Chandler, I was listening to a, a, a video where he was speaking and debating about something, and he said this, which is funny and very true. A two-month-old on the breast is cute, but a 20-year-old on the breast is disturbing. <laughs> That's what we're talking about, where things are not as they ought be and very wrong in some sense. So the book of Colossians is an amazing book. It's, I think... Incredibly theological like Romans, but very practical at the same time like James. Okay, if those are the bookends, if, if, if we could use some. And it's, it's very Pauline in the sense that when Paul writes letters, you'll see a lot of times he starts off with a lot of truth, identifying who Jesus is, who you are in Christ, and just kind of sets the stage. And then the second half of his letters typically are like, this is what this means now. This is how this is lived out in your life. There's some application based off what you know. We're in this middle part, in this sermon and the next, where you're kind of like transitioning from who Jesus is. Okay, now this is who you are. Now be that. So that's where we're at. And for Paul, with this young believing church, 
It's not enough that the Colossians got Jesus, because a lot of us got Jesus. It's not enough that they've got Jesus if who they've got doesn't radically transform every aspect of their life. Every aspect of their life. What do you mean by every? Every aspect of their life. Whomever you are, as a man, a woman, a child, a citizen of a city, an employee, a husband, a wife, a mother, it should impact that radically. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, you are a new creation. The old is gone. The new, something new has come. Now, maturity comes not when you simply agree that that's true, right? That you go, okay, yep, that's true. It's actually when you begin to act it out. When you begin to live, even if it's difficult, which it is. Even if it's painful, which it is. Even if it's sacrificial, which it is. Even if it's confusing at times, you don't, which it is. Maturity doesn't mean, well, I've got everything figured out. It means, I don't got squat figured out, but this I'm going to walk because I know I should. That's the difference. Now, spiritual maturity, I'm going to argue today, is not only hard, which is typically why we start or fail to start living that way, but it takes effort, it takes discipline, it takes courage, it takes work, and that's not to get the religious gold star. Next week's sermon could be titled, Legalism is Stupid, but it also be titled, Legalism is Really Immature. Okay. Effort, work, discipline to know Christ. That's what we're talking about. Now, beginning in verse 6 here, Paul is going to overtly center everything in Christ. He says it several times. In fact, nine or ten times he says it. Because the Colossian false teachers are in there saying, well, I'm glad you got Christ. Now you've got to grow in this. You've got to learn in this. You've got to rest in this and find peace in this and find spirituality in this. And Paul's going to be like so overt about it's in Christ. He says, walk in Him, rooted in Him, built in Him, filled in Him, circumcised by Him, buried with Him, raised with Him, victorious in Him. I think he's trying to make a point. Like overtly so, like if there's any confusion, it's in Christ that we grow. So he reminds the Colossians here to live in Christ as they were first taught, saying, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Which, in Hebrew kind of imagery would be, that's how you live and act. It's not just walking, it's a whole lifestyle of living. So how do they receive Him? Well, faith in Christ, new life in Christ, began and begins when you hear the truth, you confess Agreement to that truth, and you believe in your heart specifically who Jesus is and what he did. That's what Paul's been doing. That's where faith begins. But the thing that we, I think, readily forget or maybe ignore is that the growth of that new life comes from the exact same thing. We look at the gospel as if it's like, well, that's the rudimentary stuff that, you know, I'm past now. No, you, you never get beyond the gospel. You shouldn't get beyond the gospel. It is always about Christ, who Christ is and what He did. And knowing Christ, if maturity is like, I'm going to know Christ, I'm going to intentionally understand Christ and focus on Christ and learn from Christ and all these things, it will change you. 
it's like a relationship, right? I'm married to my wife now 16 and a half years. I'm a different person because knowing her. I have been changed. We became one flesh. It's been the most sanctifying relationship I've ever had, and that's been painful because there's been parts of me that needed to be cut off that she exposed for me. Hopefully she could say the same thing with, you know, about her. But I've, I've been a different person. There are things that have been taken off, things that have been built in because of her influence. That's like your relationship with Christ, where you spend time with Him and you will change. You will be trans. Some of it will be painful because Jesus will be like, yeah, you don't need that part. Beak! Cut it off. But you'll slowly become to look more like Christ. It'll become more natural, but it will be, I think, difficult at first. But just as marriage is more than a ring, it's more than a speaking a vow, it's more than signing a contract, so walking in Christ is more than just intellectual agreement about some facts about Jesus. But knowing Christ means intentionally working to align your Christ, your life with how He lived. And the truth is, a lot of us, and I include again myself in this, probably up to about five years ago, many of us speak about Jesus as Savior, and few of us speak regularly about Jesus as Lord. Having a Savior with fire insurance in the back pocket, Jesus, you know, died for my sins, that's fantastic, is great. Talking about Him authoritative in your life and Lord of every aspect is much more difficult. Or maybe just much less natural. The truth is, the Bible actually is just the opposite of that. Charles Spurgeon said something that was, I found it in a commentary and I would never heard it before and it was amazing to me. He said this, It's interesting to notice that the apostles preached the Lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. On the other hand, it's amazing to notice that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times, and Lord Jesus 13 times, and the Lord Jesus Christ 6 times in the same book. The Gospel is, quote, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. So lordship is just not, it's not just um, submission to authority and, and that kind of making negative connotation you attach to it, though it is. It is a life where all definitions, where all decisions, where all delights are governed by the Lordship of Christ. It is where you fight to bend your will to His by grace, through faith. Understand that? Where you are submitting your desires to His because you know your flesh wants to lead you somewhere else. Where you actually do as He told you to, you deny yourself. Which tells you to do lots of things, not all necessarily bad, but apart from Him. You deny yourself and you follow Him. Where you come to the conviction, I mean the deep, I believe, by grace belief, that your life, that your death and everything in between is His. Is His. And so you endeavor to worship Him through everything that you are. And this, quite frankly, doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't. I wish it did. But that's what 
growing up is about. It's slow, sometimes difficult to even see. But it happens. And one thing I'm certain of, at least spiritually speaking, it doesn't happen sitting down. It doesn't happen sitting down. We learn to walk by walking. My son, who's uh, seven and a half months, somewhere around there, right? He's, uh, he's not really even close to walking, but he's going to get to a point where he's going to go, and he's going to have to actually start taking steps. I'm going to have to let go of him a couple times, or he will never learn to walk. Walking's painful at times, but it's not sitting down, that's for sure. We take steps. And as we struggle in our steps to know Jesus of the Bible, to worship Jesus in the minutia that we think is insignificant in daily life, our faith becomes, as he says in verse 7, rooted and built up in Him and established. I love this verse. Roots, in a, I'm not a real good planter, gardener person. Okay, killed lots of things. Very good at that. But roots in a in a in a plant or or whatever um, usually can't be seen, but the depth of the roots is evident in the health of the plant. If a plant is healthy, typically it's going to have deep roots and and be fruitful. Roots in a plant provide strength. They provide nourishment. They provide fruitfulness according to their depth. So we need, spiritually speaking, deep roots. In Psalm 1, the very first song in this whole book of songs speaks about a man of the Word is like a tree. I like to imagine a tree like this, got deep roots, big roots. And like a tree, if you think about faith, like a tree with deep roots, man, a tree can weather some serious storms. If you're just a little seedling with no roots, you're going to get knocked over at the first whisper of wind. But a tree with deep roots can weather storms. It can even weather a long drought. It can also weather some disease at times when it comes. Because it's so healthy, it can be a little bit sick and not die. Faith with deep roots is a strong faith. It's not a perfect faith, but it's a strong faith. It's a fruitful faith. It's even a faith that provides some level of protection for others. You have something to give to others. I love that book by Shel Silverstein, The Giving Tree. Just giving all kinds of things because they have stuff to give because a fruitful tree. But see, Paul uses here some active verbs implying that we have an active role in reaching the depth of riches of Christ, that we can do something to produce deeper roots. We're not going to like suddenly just like, okay, I'm putting deep roots on. But we can grow in some way so that we develop deep roots. Because we will die without deep roots. And if you lack deep roots, if you don't take it seriously enough, because that's what we have to do. You've got to take it more seriously than we do. We just kind of think spirituality just kind of happens. And I I do believe that it's by grace. I do believe it's empowered by the Spirit. But I also believe that Paul can say, look, work. 
And we always fall on one or the other. Well, I'm going to work and it's going to be all about me. Or I'm going to be over here and just pray that the Holy Spirit leads me to actually serve somebody. Neither one of those is right. That's a ditch on each side of the road on the path we're supposed to walk is right here. And if you don't have deep roots, you end up being one of three things, okay? You either be a transplant. What's a transplant? Well, I've transplanted lots of plants and killed every single one of them. Why? Because I always transplant them like five or six times. Someone who's transplanted, well, let me make it a little more personal. Someone who goes from church to church to church to church will never develop community, ever. And they know that. No deep roots. Tell me about your devotions, right? Your Bible study. When you read your Bible, how many of us have started new systems like every month, right? Well, this week I'm going I'm to start the read the Bible through the year plan. That lasts like a week. And you go, okay, I'm going to do the proverb a day plan. That lasts about a week. And then you do, you know, you go to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and you never commit to anything to deep roots. Whatever it is, everyone's got their own style, their own way, their own fruit, but man, there's got to be a level of commitment. You're just a transplant. There's also tumbleweeds. Tumbleweeds have no roots, but they're plants. And guess what happens to them? They're blowing around all over the place. Well, this is good. This is great. This is fantastic. They never put roots in anything. It's not their way. They are children tossed to and fro. Then there's one that's really interesting. I was looking a lot about roots and plants because I'm very ignorant about it. And I found out that by definition, moss has no roots. Moss. I don't know how many people, like, if I had a choice between, I'm an oak tree, right? I'm moss in terms of my spirituality. I mean, it's, I'm moss. Like, what is that? Well, I am on rocks, typically, or trees. I'm really thin. I'm full of bugs and goo and wetness, but I really have absolutely no roots at all. Well, that's a nice picture, okay? That's what you can be without roots. You're one of those three. I know I'm, I'm generalizing, but we need deep roots. And the fact is that, that Jesus is a person, right? He's not just the system that you study. He's not just a, a set of, of moralisms that you follow because they're His teachings. He's a person, and like any person, it's going to take time to get to know Him. But building deep roots like that, it requires time. You don't have deep roots overnight, but you will have them over time. Discipline and commitment. It's like a garden. We've got a garden, and it sucks. Okay? Because I'm not committed enough to it. I mean, it's like so much easier to go into Hagen and buy like the chemical-covered tomatoes and to, to grow my own, right? I'm like, garden, that sounds great. So I, I build these planters. I'm like, okay, what are we going to plant? I don't know. Let's just throw the seeds out and see what happens. No, that's not how you do it. Each one, you got different depths, different places. you got to like put them next to stuff. I'm like, that's just way too much work. So then I wait for a year, and the next year, because I didn't plant it, it's full of weeds. Well, now i got another step. I gotta pull all these weeds out so that I can hope to get a squash, which I don't even like. Okay? So, and then they're like, well, now you should save all your food scraps and let it like dissolve into goo so you can like mulch it into like, now I gotta save all my old gross food and like, I mean, it's like, come on. Yeah. Takes some work. I don't, here's the, here's the beauty of it I don't control the sun, I don't necessarily control all the moisture. 
I don't control whether that seed goes up. All the growth is from the Lord. But I have to do, I got to plant a seed. I got to clean. There's some participation in there. I understand my role and God's role. I, I can't control the harvest, but I can control what goes in before the harvest. Now, the fact is, Paul knows in verse 8, there's a lot of things that will allure us to not put the work in. There's a lot of things that captivate us that would cause us to go, you know what, I'd rather just lie in the crib. I'd rather just sit in front of the TV. This is so much easier. I'd rather spend all my time on Facebook. Now, we kind of are silly about that. I read the most recent statistic. 16% of the average American spends 16% of their time. All right, not six. The average American spends 16% of their time on Facebook. The user, I should say, average user. You know how much time that is? I started calculating it. It's like 27 hours a week. They go, no way. Really? When people are on there every day telling me that every move just went to the bathroom, eating a muffin now, I'm like, <laughs> like, seriously. Just checked in at the gym. Like, do you, I really, you, I, maybe you guys do. You walk in, you're like, I just, I'm at the gym now. Like, wow. I don't have time for that. But, you know, and I, I'm being obviously a little facetious, but there are a lot of things to captivate us, some really silly and some pretty, pretty big. But Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So in verse 4, earlier, Paul had said, uh, warned the Colossians about plausible arguments, right? Because we always think the things that are captivate us will be the most evil things, and I'll easily avoid those. Those aren't the things that captivate us. The things that captivate us are the things that sound good. The things that sound very reasonable. Like, Satan didn't come to Adam and go, hey, eat this apple and you'll die, but you'll also get this other... No! He's like, no, you're going to be like God. You're going to have so many awesome experiences, you know, all these things. Lies! Lies sound good! That's why we fall for lies! Lies look good. Lies feel good. Okay? If you've seen the new Mormon campaign... Okay, the Mormon church is full of really nice people, really moral people who right, love the wrong Jesus. That's the bottom line. Now, but they're, this campaign where, man, you see these TV shows, they're like, or these uh, commercials, and these guys are like, I'm an artist and this, and I'm this, and like, and I'm a Mormon, and I'm a Mormon. You're like, wow, that's a, yeah, it's a nicely packaged lie, is what it is. Some of the, the false teachers in the Colossian are probably experiencing this, are, are not bad people in the sense that we think they're bad people teaching bad morals. The most, I guess, evil ones, the most uh, effective ones, are the ones that are sincere and loving and sophisticated. And that's what makes them such effective kidnappers. And that's the sense of this captivating. You are, you're taken. You're You're stolen. There is a danger in being kidnapped by the things of this world that are not of Christ. And some of them even may use the name of Christ. Not, and what makes them so alluring, I should say, is not because they're bad things. As Keller, Tim Keller says, it's because we love good things so badly is the problem. Now, the truth is, the most vulnerable people are the spiritual children. People without roots. 
you don't see too many Amber Alerts for 35 to 40 year old men, right? Tim Johnson is missing. 37 year old male was abducted by, you know, no, you don't see that. It's always children. It's kids because they're vulnerable. They easily fall into temptation. They were lured. They are taken. That's one of my greatest fears. I'm always, my boy's not as much, but my daughter, I'm always like, where is she? I want to know. Because they're easily grabbed and we're easily captivated and I think that we without doubt deny that and don't believe that. Spiritual children are captivated by this reason and I say this for all of us because we're all immature some of the time, some of us more of the time. It happens and we're captivated because we don't find Jesus captivating enough. That's the key. And though it's, it's tempting to be a child forever. I mean, I don't know how many times I've woken up and reminisced with my wife about being a kid. Oh, man. I remember the hardest decisions we had to make was whether I was going to have Fruity Pebbles or Lucky... Well, I'm my kid. My parents never bought that. Whether I was going to have generic Cheerios or, like, Rice Krispies that were soggy. Like, one of, that was a tough decision. Um, whether I was going to watch, you know, He-Man or... Uh, you know, Transformers. Hmm, I don't know. Flip a coin. I mean, those are the hard decisions of life. You, sometimes you look back and you're like, oh man, that was so great. My food was provided me. I walked in. My mom always had dinner at, you know, 5.30. It's awesome. There was always stuff to make my lunch there. Awesome. I always had clothes. Never had to go to school naked. Awesome. Right? I had a house. My, the heat was on most of the time. Oh, I mean, it was, things were provided. And then you become an adult and you're like, man, it was so good to be a kid. Right? The responsibility as an adult. But the reality is, there's incredible joy as an adult, and we begin to romanticize what it was like to be a kid and really want, well, I want to, I would like to just lie in that crib. And spiritually, we do the same thing. I just want someone to feed me. I just want someone to wipe my butt. It'd be awesome, okay? That's what we do spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking, right? I hope, spiritually speaking. Stay in that world, because it could be a dark world the other way, all right? Now, Paul says, though, see to it. We don't like that word. See to it. Like, you have some investment and control over this. See to it that you're not captivated. Well, okay. See to it that you're not grabbed. There are lots of things to draw us, and he uses three things. Some of these things are taught, some of the things are caught that draw us away from Christ, and he just identifies three. Foolish philosophies, which... Those are the things that I think taught as wise by the culture, but they're really just man-centered ways of thinking. You've got the traditions, which I think are often those things handed down by our families that we typically accept as the right way to do things and don't question them as quickly enough, maybe. Or the religious uh, or irreligious spirits putting full systems forward, like Mormonism or many others, with false gods and idols and demonic teaching. So you got lots of things to draw you. So the question is, what captivates you? I mean, really, what, what, what do you waste your time on most? What do you ultimately use to guide your decision-making? And who or what governs your understanding of manhood, of womanhood, of marriage, of sexuality, of communication? of what it means to serve somebody or love somebody, what, or wealth, your perspective on it. They're shaped by something, 
Some are by traditions, what we were raised with. Some are by what we're taught. And some by much worse. If it's not Christ, it's going to be slavery. I'm just trying to warn you. And I fall and captivate it occasionally as well. And I love, here's where it turns. And he just hits it like, boom, love it. Verse 9, he says, for. Right? The word for is very important because it's like, because. Because what's going to follow is the reason why you should be walking and growing in Christ. And Paul is going to proclaim the reality of our identity in Christ. That's the point. Because here's when you become captivated by something else. When you forget who you are in Christ. That's it. Not when you stop doing religious things. When you forget the truth of who Christ is and what He did and who you are by faith in Him, that's where things go bad. So maturity is going, who is Jesus? And not getting captivated. It's always looking to Christ and He's like, in Him, in Him. Hit this, watch this, it's awesome. Right? What He does is so beautiful. Instead of spending His time destroying and denouncing every evil thing, Instead of making fun of the stupidity of legalism, which he will a little bit, but instead of focusing all his energies there, he makes Jesus huge. He says, you want to delight in something? Boom! This is who Jesus is. Creator of all things. Lord of all things. Sustainer of all things. He wants you and I to be captivated by Christ. And he says there, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. He's like, dude, there's a lot in Jesus. Why are you even looking at that stuff? Christ is the most excellent, beautiful, majestic, greatest of things. He is captivating fullness in life. Fullness in fill in the blank. Your job or lack thereof. Your marriage, fullness in life, does not reside outside of what resides right now in your heart if you are in Christ. All that there is to see in Jesus is all that there is worth seeing. And you possess, this is amazing, you possess right now all that can be yours this side of heaven. He says we've been filled up with Christ. We've been filled up with Christ's life. His joy. His endurance. His courage. His patience. You have been filled up with Christ's humility so that regardless of your past, regardless of your current situation, regardless of the fear you think of what's going to happen, you right now possess in Christ, the capacity to live with Jesus as Lord and to live that joyfully. You have it there. It's in you. It's a matter of delving into it and looking at it and studying it and knowing it and then therefore being changed by it. The fullness of Christ, quite frankly, is who He is and what He's done, namely the Gospel. It must be preached to yourself over and over again the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And he is just hammering who they are in him. And he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ. So you've been circumcised, which I'm sure sounds really wonderful to you. Okay? You've been circumcised in Him. And we need to understand that circumcision was the identifying physical characteristic of a spiritual reality for the Jew. On the eighth day after the birth of a son, he would be circumcised. And circumcision was the visible sign of being one of God's people. Of, of being separated out from all the peoples of the world, saying, you are special, you are chosen, you are the inheritor of the covenant promises. Now, anyone who had to convert to Judaism, would, later would be called God-fearing Jew, would also have to be circumcised. It was that important. And it symbolized the cutting off, literally, of a former way of life, symbolized by the removal of this end of the penis. And it was never to be reattached. That's important. It was never to be reattached. It was supposed to be, this has been cut off, you're revealed for who you are, you're released to live. And for the believer, that doesn't happen in Christ, right? We don't get circumcised and say, I'm a Christian now. But Paul speaks often about the circumcision of the heart. Something that was accomplished by the steady hand of Christ. Let's put that on the shelf for a second. We'll take it off. The circumcision piece. We're coming back to it. I'm sure. Yeah. Verse 12 says, okay, having been buried, so this is all connected, You've been circumcised, having been buried with Him, Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So when did this circumcision happen for the believer? How does Paul know that these people he's never met are Christians? Well, he has Epaphras coming to him, telling him about the church he planted. He says, how do you know these people are Christians? Because they have been baptized, which was the practice, the first step of obedience for anyone who came to faith. It's part of the Great Commission. Baptism is, in a very real way, the gateway to the Christian life. Now, mind you, baptism doesn't save anybody. It is the external representation, demonstration, physical act of what's already happened internally in your heart. So, if you die... Oh, I'm saved Jesus, and lightning bolt hits you, you're going to be with Jesus, okay, if you didn't get baptized yet. That's not what I'm trying to argue. But what I am saying is that baptism, the act of baptism, we do it twice a year. If you've not been baptized and you're a believer, I'll baptize you right after church. We'll drive down to the water, we'll do it. I'm dead serious about this. It's an act of obedience, the first one that demonstrates that I am a Christian identifying with Christ and dying with Jesus and coming alive, right? Dying, I'm going under, and coming alive. Resurrected to new life in Christ. Baptism is what identifies an individual visibly as a child of God. Because baptism was literally like a funeral for the old self for the world to see. Romans 6 calls it, says it this way, says, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ were baptized into His death? And we were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of Father, we too might walk in the newness of life, not in eternity right now. So, baptism was the proclamation of your resurrected life in Christ. 
Some of you got baptized because you checked that box. You thought what, that's what you're supposed to do. I don't necessarily think that's wrong. But it was a ceremony like no other was supposed to be, where you were given in a very visible way something you already had, but declared, I have a new identity, a new name, and that is Jesus. He is my Lord, and He's my Savior. And through this action, you declare that you're fundamentally not about Paul or Apollos or Martin Luther or Calvin or Republicanism or democracy, whatever. You're not about fundamentally those things. You are about being governed by the Lordship of Jesus. Your baptism meant something. It was the external representation. It was you taking your faith beyond words and going, here you go. It is the first step forward, I think, in adulthood. It's like spiritual puberty. It is your first step onto that path. It's a confession of a belief that you are in Him. It's a day that a line is drawn. It is a decisive moment that that faith, as I said, moves beyond words. It's when what is already alive internally comes to fruition externally that your faith or your life is found in Christ. I love Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me. Christ living through you. What's that mean? Take circumcision off the, fel- off the shelf, right? That was the cutting off of that fleshly life of yours. That allure of the world. And so, we don't need to go back up and pick that old piece of dead skin and start playing with it. Because we see it for what it is. Dead skin, yuck, gone. And that sin that you had, the sins that you committed and the sins committed against you, guess what? It was buried with Christ. And it's supposed to stay there. Why do you keep digging it up and bringing it out? Like, well, my dad did this and mom did this and my dad didn't do this and my mom didn't do this and this person did. Leave it buried. It's gone. Quit digging up dead people and playing with it. And you are given new life. You really believe, I have new life. I, so I'm not going to play dead. I'm not just going to sit in a crib. I'm going to live life, not as if I'm in a tomb, but if I've actually been resurrected with boldness, with joy, with, yeah, i got nothing to lose. That's the difference. In any obstacle that you can think of, just like Stanley. Well, this is why I can't do that. This happened to me. Any obstacle that you may want to throw out to say, this is what has kept me away from Christ. And really what you're talking about is all the dead stuff in your life. The dead mind, the dead body. He says here in, in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses, your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh when you weren't my people, God made alive together with you, having forgiven all of your sin. By canceling the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands, He set aside nailing it to the cross. Maturity in Christ is about living the truth of that. In Christ, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven! I mean, why do we continue to live lives of guilt? Lives of of fear 
Lies that, gosh, I'm going to lose. I'm going to do something and Jesus is going to say, well, you're just too dirty now. You are forgiven and in Christ you are free. You're free to live. There's no condemnation in Christ. There's no guilt in Christ. There's no fear that I'm not going to be able to pay back what I owe. It's been paid. Living a Christ-centered life should be, should I say should be because I fear it's not, the most energizing thing we can have. Why? Here's the reality. It gives us a direction to walk. It shows us how we're to walk. But more than that, it provides us through Christ, His resurrection provides us the power to actually walk like that. It's not like, well, go do this and good luck. It's I can actually walk this path. I can actually do what He has called me to do. And here's the most beautiful part. As you walk, you are going to fall flat on your face. Welcome to Christianity. But here's the beautiful part. As you, we walk this path, right? There's two ditches. We'll talk about this next week. Representing the extremes of where we can be that's not in Christ and this life of self-denial. And we'll fall. And you'll fall. And Christ comes along and says, get up. Dust you off. Let's go. Keep going. And sometimes he kicks you in the butt. And sometimes he's just kind of comforting you. It's like when you're riding a bike. Have you ever taught a kid to ride a bike? It's the most terrifying thing you can do. Okay? <laughs> Except my daughter re- re- learned really quick. My oldest son learned pretty fast. And my young middle son did not learn fast at all. So with him... I got a workout. I think I got in shape because it was like days and weeks, right? Versus that fear of taking off the training wheels and then you get them on the bike and they're going, bam! And like boys, for some reason, they find cars and they just like, they don't just like fall into the soft grass. It's just like, wham, man, they're getting cuts. I'm putting like shin pads and all these things on them. And what am I doing the whole time? You're good, you know, and I'm running along and then I let them go. It's like, oh, Bam! Up again, right? Let's keep going. <laughs> Crying. I'm like, no. And I'm like sprinting, okay? Because then they're starting to get kind of faster and they can't stop. So I'm just like, you know, running. And they're about to fall. And sometimes I'll catch them and they make it worse and like flip the bike over. So the truth is, though, we keep going. And eventually you start riding the bike. And eventually, that's what Christ is like. He's, he's just walking along going, no, you're going to keep going. It's okay. You can walk the path. You can... You can get, you can grow up. And even if we fall a thousand times, a thousand times, which you will, he'll be there again. And it's the kind of life that I would hope people would say, man, I've never felt so alive. We say that about so many other things. Bungee jumping, you know, going on a really awesome date. It's someone we think we want to marry or something. You're like, oh man, I never felt so alive. We ever said that about our faith. We're like, man, I got, I got nothing to lose. This is awesome. You lost your job. Yeah! I mean, not really that, but you're like, man, God has me. What's next? Bring it. Awesome. Close it out. For those who put their faith in Christ... There's no power that can stop you because he says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You are victorious. You are victorious. Yeah. 
And this is what this means. It doesn't mean there's not going to be any battles. But before Joshua fought, guess what he said? I'll do you one. Already won, man. So the land's already mine. Just go. Just put your foot on the battlefield. You lift the sword and be like, and then a meteor was, boom, takes a guy out and like, dude, you really did win. Before the Jordan was split, they just had to put a toe in the water. It was like, boom. Like, oh. It's not that you're not involved, but it does mean that you put a foot on the battlefield and God has already been victorious. You've got to start walking. And it's rare, I think, that we ever feel victorious before we start you know, walking. Most of us, quite frankly, feel defeated. Someone says, dude, you can be that husband. You go, dude, I've been the crappiest husband for the last 10 years. You can do it in Christ. I don't know, I've, I've been a, a terrible wife. You can do it. Stay focused in Christ. The truth is, Jesus isn't just winning, right? He's won. He's won. And we have to believe that deeply. He has paraded His enemies, whether that be Rome or the religious freaks or sin or Satan, like a conquering general taking his captives and he's saying, look, nothing to fear. They're defeated enemies. You've got nothing to fear. Fear leads you away from Christ. Jesus wants you to trust Him and to live as if you have nothing to lose. Secret, you don't. So it's not about sitting like a child, cowering in your crib, afraid to actually be an adult. It's believing that you already are. Take the stinking diaper off and start living and don't be scared. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. No, it means that you admit I'm actually going to fail, but I'm going to get back up. It means that you begin with your eyes wide open, ready to fight, acting like a man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And being a man is not finding your strength in yourself. On the contrary, it is losing yourself and finding strength in Him by walking in Him, being rooted in Him, dying in Him, living in Him, and fighting in Him. And communion, every Sunday, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a declaration of how pathetic and weak we are. It's admitting that I don't have the strength, but it's declaring that Christ does and did. And you can live through Him. When you come to the table, it's a confession, man, I keep falling in the ditch, Lord. And then it's going, but you keep lifting me up. Preach the gospel to yourself this morning. I tried. Sometimes it comes better from your own heart. Preach it to yourself. We are captivated by the world when we forget who we are in Christ. You forget how captivating Christ is. So stop listening to the lies of your past. Stop listening to the voices of culture. Stop listening to that voice in your own heart that's trying to tell you something different to draw you away from Christ, how you ought to think, feel, and behave. Instead, start preaching the truth to yourself. And being as the truth is Jesus, start preaching Jesus to yourself. Amen?